If not a match made in heaven, then it was certainly a match made on moon. For that was the first collaboration between writer, director Duncan Jones and composer Clint Mansell. Such was the success of that film, it seemed inevitable the pair would reunite. And so it is, they join me from Los Angeles to discuss their latest project together, the Netflix original, Mute. I'm Edith Bowman and you're listening to Soundtracking, the film music podcast in partnership with the EE BAFTAs. Co-written and directed by Duncan, Mute tells the story of a mute bartender searching for his girlfriend who mysteriously disappears in a near-future Berlin. And it is with great pleasure that we gathered Duncan and Clint into the studio in LA to discuss the thoughts and processes behind Clint's score, Duncan's needle drops and the more general sonic tone he was aiming for. We'll also explore Moon in detail too. Now, as we'll hear, Mute is particularly personal to Duncan, not least because of the time he spent in Berlin with his father, the late, great David Bowie during the 1970s. As such, he sought ways to allude to that connection musically, eventually settling on the hero's movement of Philip Glass's Symphony No. 4. Duncan and Clint, thank you so much for sparing the time to chat to me. Welcome back to Soundtracking, Clint. Thank um, you. Thanks for having me again, Edith. Lovely to hear from you. You too. And Duncan, welcome and thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. Through the powers of social media, this kind of happened, which is amazing, really. It is. Twitterverse brings us all together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I w- had the pleasure of watching Mute yesterday. Congratulations. I loved everything about it. Yay, thank you. That's good. Cool. The characters, the aesthetic, the music. It's a weird one. It's a weird one, but we're proud of it. Well, you should be. But this is a story that you had way before Moon, isn't it? This has been a a story you've wanted to tell for a long time. Yeah, um, Mike Johnson and I, who wrote it together, um, we wrote it 16 years ago. It was supposed to be my first film, and uh, we sent it out to Sam Rockwell um, in the hopes that he would play a character by the name of Duck, who ended up being played by Justin Theroux. And Sam loved the script but wanted to play Leo, who is Alexander Skarsgård's character. But as you can tell, having seen the film, that role really requires a certain physical presence that as wonderful as an actor as Sam is, he was, he was never going to be able to do. <laughs> um, so we went off and did Moon instead. And then basically every film after Moon, I keep on thinking, OK, Mute's going to be next, Mute's <laughs> going to be next. And um, it was just a really hard film to get made. And I'm very grateful for Netflix for letting us finally do it. All the best ones are hard to get made. Clint, were you aware of this story whilst you guys had been working on, on Moon? Or Duncan kind of shared this story with you at all. I remember him saying, I, I don't know whether it was when we were actually working on Moon or not long after, that Mute was going to be next. <laughs> and, and here we are. <laughs> I, I, was, I, was, I was right, kind of. Yeah. Just, in, just not next, next. Not next, next, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and what were the conversations that you, you had then with regards to the, the sound? Well, I think the first question was, how are we going to fit 
the one and only into this movie. <laughs> that was really important. And, and then yeah. and then build the yeah. musical soundscape yeah. out from that. Sort of, sort of like backwards, sort of like retro <laughs> engineering, you know. Reverse engineering um, from there. What's the well, deal with that track? It's, what, what? Well, you know, it, it's, it started off as a really, really good joke. <laughs> and then it was kind of, yeah, you've told that joke. Yeah, it was pretty good. And, and then it just became kind of this, this weird signature that I'd kind of scribble in, this, in the corner of every movie. And now I can't stop myself. I kind of feel like my work is not complete until I've finally found a way to crowbar it in there somewhere. Yeah. It's like a sort of modern-day Alfred Hitchcock. You know, you yeah, to, exactly. It's your signature okay. you got to get in. Rather than a performance, it's, it's a but song. It I watched Source Code again this week, and I had kind of forgotten, and I, I physically burst out laughing. <laughs> <laughs> the phone rang, and it's kind of like, Hi! Hello, old friend! <laughs> a bit like that but where did you want to start or go with the music from Mute and what were the discussions that you had? It was a tricky one it was a very tricky one because Mute was originally and has become even more so a very personal film to me and there's kind of obvious reasons for that I spent some time in Germany growing up when my dad was out there working and because dad passed away just before we made the film I wanted to find a way to allude to what I felt in my time in Berlin back when I was there in the 1970s and also pay some kind of homage to dad in as delicate a way as I could so it didn't feel like I was you know, trying to shove it in anyone's face. One of the pieces that I wanted to use, I wanted to find a way to use heroes in the movie in some way. And what I ended up doing is using a track from Philip Glass's Symphony Number no. 4. And that felt like a good mood piece. But then when Clint and I started working together as well, there was a lot of other inspirations and things that came into play.
you say there's certain pieces of music that you wanted to get in there and that Philip Glass's interpretation of is it is wonderful and it's one of a couple of albums that he did as a tribute to your dad but with the other tracks in there as well there's a beautiful trinket box version of a Nirvana song in there as well oh yeah it's, it's really stunning and it's in a weird place as well I mean <laughs> yeah. in, it, it, was, <laughs> it, it accompanies quite a dark moment and, a, and quite a powerful moment in the movie juxtaposition is in a, in a way something we played around with in Moon yeah. Yeah. Um, where we yeah. had a where we had a, a we used a lullaby Clint came up with this beautiful lullaby for the reveal of uh, what we called Sam's nursery yeah um, and and it was kind of a it, it worked so well in that it's I just I couldn't help reusing it because I'm a hack <laughs> <laughs> no, it, was, it was beautiful beautifully what it was Because the world that you've created in, in what is this kind of near future dystopian Berlin, kind of where it's it's sort of set, it almost does kind of feel like it could be a child's interpretation of, of living in a city like Berlin at that time. Is that what you were trying oh, to thanks, do? Oh, thanks, Edith. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like a child's drawing. <laughs> it's special. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's like a it's like a small boy trying to make spaghetti. <laughs> Try harder next time. Don't. No, I'm going to put uh, oranges in it. Oranges would be delicious. But you know where colours are more vibrant than, than the reality of them and buildings take on different shapes and forms. Yeah, just that, that kind of fantastical world that a child can see a place through, that more more through your, your eyes than a child creating it. <laughs> well, no, I mean, the truth is that one of the real benefits of shooting in Berlin is Berlin is an extraordinary 
extraordinary city and there's nowhere quite like it right now. And I think ever since I've been there and kind of been back there over the decades, it's always been a city that feels like it's looking towards the future and what's happening next. They're not that interested in where they are now or and they're certainly not interested in where they've been. Um, they're much more interested about where they're going. And it makes for interesting architecture, it makes for interesting people, you know, the people who gravitate towards Berlin. And we really sort of found ourselves shooting on location around the city an awful lot and not having to do a huge amount to actually take it into the future. Did Duncan give you the script and then you start talking about it when you're thinking about where you want to go with this and, and what the soundscape for the film is going to be? Yeah, um, when somebody says they're, they're going to set a, a film in, in the near future in Berlin, it sort of gets the juices flowing anyway. And um, obviously Duncan and I talked about his dad's work there, you know, and Duncan had said he didn't want to make a big deal of it, didn't want to avoid it, you know, it just, it would be just part of it if, if, if it felt right you know and low is is one of the records that I always go back to it you know pretty much on any project I'm working on really but but just in in my regular day-to-day -day life it's a record that I, I particularly go back to when I feel really uninspired because there's just something magical about it that, that brings something even if it just turns your day around you know which I suppose is a bit strange for such a I don't think it's a dark record myself personally, but um, but you know it, it it just inspires me, and so being able to bring things or or, or lean on things or, or or hark back to things that have been part of my life make it special for me too. You know, the two films we've done together have been really really special films for me. You know, and um, I just find um, you know Duncan's a filmmaker that that his work is alive with things like I say I mean just the fact of choosing Berlin you know um, obviously he's got his uh, background and reasons for that but that place and, and Germany in general if you, if you sort of uh, you think about music and film it's, it's a hotbed yeah. so there's, there's so much to sort of immerse yourself into to bring to the table if you like I mean obviously everything has to serve the film the film is 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 the master if you like but you can bring such a lot to it that, that you can experiment with and try and find what, what the film really needs. Because Lowe is part of Bowie's Berlin trilogy. Well, you can definitely hear echoes of it in the score and tracks like Art Decade. Oh, yeah.
comes to characters, though, and, and with Clint's score, do you think about themes for characters and how you can play with those themes to almost kind of unpick? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to force well. I'm going to force Clint to talk about this in a minute. But okay. but one of the things that we that we absolutely had to make work right up at the start of the film was the relationship between Alexander Skarsgård's character Leo and the woman that he's in in love with, Nadira. And that theme, what we realized is it had to live on throughout the film, yeah. even though she ceases to be as big a presence um, as the film continues, because that's kind of the ticking heartbeat of, of what Leo is living for and what he's all about. love story it's a beautiful love story it is and truly clint does the heavy lifting of keeping that love story feeling alive i'm blushing <laughs> i could see it um go on then this is the bit where you talk about it then <laughs> he's gonna make you talk about it he said <laughs> i don't know you know that these sort of things are um they're, they're weird to talk about really because i mean we talked about all, all different sorts of things that are going on in the film you know there's like elements of film noir in there you know and obviously sci-fi and then you've got this romance you know and this heartbroken loss you can only i, I mean i can anyway i mean you, you can only sort of draw on your own experiences you know and um and as as i know you know edith that Heather died like three and a half years ago now and yeah. nearly four years ago and like you can't help but find yourself in a place where you can kind of relate you know and this guy has we've we've seen how much he loves her at the start of the film and then I don't want to say it's easy because it's horrible but at the same time you know you, you, it's sort of something that you you can kind of tap into I suppose you know. But from there, you know, you've got to 
it's got it's got to work with with the characters and and how we wanted to use it where, where elsewhere in the film, you know. Um, and also, I mean, I would I would say that because of the multicultural mix of the cast in Berlin of, of this future Berlin that we're yeah. depicting, and the fact that. Nadira is from Afghanistan. I remember that you were playing around with, you know, how much do we allude to that? Yeah, do we bring yeah. any of that into the music? Yeah, we, we, and, and as I said, the same with the film noir, you know, we, we tried a little bit of that. And it, it always felt if you pushed it too much, it, yeah. was, it was going to be too, too forced, too on the nose, you know, and you kind of, yes, you want to sort of hark these things, but they, they've got to be the character of the film, you know. And, you know, that's, that's, that's part of of the beauty, if you like, of having, you know, an extended amount of time, at least enough time to work on these things to sort of not get it wrong, but, you know, yeah. you, you start off with big chunks, if you like, and then you, you got to smooth them down so that, you know, you end up with Leo's bedpost eventually, you know. It's a, <laughs> it started off as a hunk of wood and now yeah. it's, a, it's a beautiful, intricate piece of work. That's what you have to do, you know. You, you, you start off with probably pretty rudimentary ideas, really, and every piece that you do informs every other piece you do, you know, and, um, you know, you might learn about the love theme from the fight scene, you know, yeah. and that's part of the process that I really love, you know. I mean, it's hard and frustrating, of course, but the results can be, can be wonderful. It's really powerful the way that the theme is kind of manipulated for different parts of the film as well, where it can kind of, it almost takes some different forms to to show different emotions for those characters as well. It's really, it's so clever. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's a really, it's a, it's a, it's an unusual film structurally in that it, it, it's kind of split in two between Leo's detective story and these two strange but weirdly alluring um, American surgeons, Cactus and Duck. You know, obviously, Clint's job is to is to keep is to keep some kind of tangible connection between between these two stories and and make sure that you don't feel like you're watching two separate films. But at the same time, you have to you have to re, you know you have to know that you're you're watching two <laughs> two very different stories and they have mm. and they have two different very tones. And somehow you have to bring those together as the film moves along.
it is beautifully kind of married with those tracks and it's like Broken Mouth Blues, Nick Armstrong and the Thieves, it's in there as well. I love that track. Is it easy for you to decide on the contemporary music that you include in that? Well, that was a funny one because 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 really there was there was a rule of thumb that I was trying to go by for um, any of the scenes that involved Cactus and Duck. Um, <laughs> Cactus you are brilliant, is, by the way. Oh, my oh, God. Paul, Paul Rudd plays this character, Cactus. So angry. <laughs> it's, it's the angriest you'll ever see Paul Rudd. When he, says in, angry... the, when he says in the coffee shop, it's a fucking cookie. It's, kind of, <laughs> it's called he's, a fucking cookie. He's like, all right. Yeah, he's a bit of a temper. A bit of a temper issue. Um, but but, but when, when I had those characters on screen, I really wanted to use as much American music as possible because... Um, the idea was that Cactus hates, hates, hates being in Berlin, hates being abroad. He wants to get back to America. That's all he cares about. And it ended up that that, that Nick Armstrong piece, even though it's a British, you know, it's a, a British piece of music, as British as it gets, it just totally felt right for this bowling alley where Cactus hangs out with Duck. They hang out at American diners. They go to bowling alleys. Anything they can do to make them not feel like they're in Germany. <laughs> yeah. um, and that, that track just worked beautifully. I got my eyes on your charm when you hold that threat to my throat. Looking at all the corners in the room. Trying to find an angle that will work. Gonna take somebody else to get me to come back to you. Gonna take somebody else to do all the things you want to do. How many takes did Justin have to do to get that strike? <laughs> oh, no, that was brilliant. That was, um, you know, we were like, you know, that's in the bag, move on. Let's go. <laughs> oh, no, he's a total overachiever. Oh, man. <laughs> Unbelievable. Can you be so cruel to someone that wants to kiss you so? And I mean by nothing hopeless. You're visiting us too soon. I gotta sit so all alone. You said so all alone, tell me like you do. connection with Moon, you've said that it's a connection with Moon, obviously, and Free the 156, there's posters and stuff, and, and there's a little news section in the film, and I almost jumped out my seat and kind of was like, 
Why? Because yeah. <laughs> it's so exciting. Because you, 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 you fell in love with that character. You know, you, you fell in love with Sam and with Sam's character. And they're running parallel almost in terms of time, isn't it? Someone was talking to me about it the other day, and I, and, and I like picking up on other people's, you know, working out what the film's about. Because that's, you know, that's really an unbiased take on it. <laughs> yeah. And they said it felt like an anthology. And it's kind of like an anthology that takes place, you know, in the same universe, in the same timeline. And they have very delicate kind of connections to each other. But it's really just about they happen to take place in the same world. And, you know, as any great global event would kind of be something that you'd be aware of. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily change your day, but you know about it. And it's kind of in the background of what you're doing. And that's really, you know, the epilogue to Sam's story mm. is to to what what's going on in Leo's life. I think it's Duncan taking on the Marvel Universe, really. <laughs> <laughs> it's world building. You know? <laughs> I'm looking forward to the Dark Bunny T-shirts. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, very very fetching as an yeah. Amish father as well in the background on a picture. Oh, well. did you see that? Yeah, that was very... me. That was me with my son. That was oh, me with my little boy. What a lovely kind of. <laughs> so that's, what a that's his first cameo. That. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. So great. Uh, that was not to get too serious and deep. Um, but but the whole you know subtext of parenthood was a big part of what made me want to make this film and, and for such a long time and I think the longer it's been and the more that's happened in my life and the fact that now I've got a little boy and a little girl on the way the themes of, of parenthood in, yeah. in mute became more and more pronounced and more important to me and realizing what Leo's parents did to him as far as leaving him in this condition of being unable to speak because his mother was very religious and wouldn't allow him to get the surgery to fix it. And then obviously Cactus's situation as far yeah. as being a parent who obviously loves his daughter but just doesn't have her in a, in a life, you know, in a, where, where it's fitting for a kid to be. You know, I think that was something that was that was very um, important to me and, and became more important as I made the film. Obviously, Duncan said he wrote this 16 years ago and, and these things seem to find their place, you know, and obviously all, all of his experiences in that time have, have fed into the film, which, which is, a, again, is a part of what makes it a, a rich tapestry, for want of a better word, that, that the music can sort of, you know join in with that can attach itself to you know? I think I think I think I, I'm absolutely confident that if I tried to make that film 16 years ago it wouldn't have been nearly yeah. as deep as I think as it is mm -hmm. now yeah I think that depth is probably what gave Clint an awful lot more handhelds as far as yeah. where to where to know, oh, okay, I can understand what the feelings are here and why they're there. Yeah, I mean, you know, the film can can, can carry those those themes or that subtext in the musical sense, I suppose, you know. It, it got, it's got something you can hang off. And the film dedicated at the end to your dad and Marion as well. It's just lovely, those words in memory of those who become parents. So, you know, you're including all those people who still have that joy to become as well, which is just a lovely sentiment to to end the film with it's, it's really touching really really is yeah no i'm uh, it was it was it was for leo and for uh, and for everyone everyone who ends up as a parent one way or another yeah <laughs> can we talk a bit more about moon yeah i watched it again last night i'm such a sicko I am. You pro. Uh, I, 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 it's, you can though, you feel like, I don't know, you get something different from it every time you watch it. And I was lucky enough actually to speak to Sam on Sunday night after he picked up his BAFTA for three billboards. And I said that I was going to be chatting to you. And just by mentioning Moon, his face just lit up. <laughs> every time I look at Moon or think about Moon now, I think of Top Gear. because <laughs> they use Clint's music so much. It's like, oh, Top Gear, whatever happens to you. <laughs> Ha <laughs> <laughs>
your memories about Moon Duncan about making that film? Oh my god. Um, <laughs> it was it was ago? it was the best of times, it was the worst <laughs> of times. No, it was it was fantastic. It was um it was a small group of us who who were really kind of the core team on that. Gavin Rothery, Stuart Fennigan, who was the producer, Sam Rockwell, me, Gary Shaw. Just this little group of people um, that were determined to make this ridiculous film at a time when British independent films were pretty much all about little Brit gangster films. Um, and, we want, and we wanted to make this weird space philosophy, you know, philosophizing thing. And it was, the, it was an amazing experience. And I, I nearly died doing it both because I fell off a scaffolding tower oh, and, and also because I was so bloody exhausted just making it. But it was incredible. It was a privilege to make it, just the, the fun of doing it. Yeah. I read a really lovely thing that of, of how important almost it is to that world and that I believe it was screened as part of a lecture series at NASA. Yeah, no, it was an incredible experience. I mean, the, the, the follow-up, once the film was made, the people I heard from and the places I heard from who'd been impacted or affected, whether it was, you know, scientists at NASA who wanted to talk about it or there was this amazing, there was, a, there was a, a, a therapist in Australia who contacted me who said that she'd been dealing with some people who had some, you know, really traumatic isolation issues and they'd watched the film and they were like, yes, that's how I feel. That, <laughs> wow. what, what's going on in that movie. Wow. I mean, it's, it was really, wow. it just, it touched people in very beautiful ways. typical sci-fi score. It feels like a band. I think Clint came up on something really magical, really early on actually, which yeah. was the two note, ding, yeah. ding, which is all this thematic thing of having a sense of a duplicate that we were trying to do everywhere. It was in the poster, it was in the music, it was all over the place. Yeah. And two notes is just about all I can play, so. <laughs> <laughs>
It was a band, actually. I mean, uh, still to this day, except for Mute, of course. Um, <laughs> the script to Moon is, is probably the best script I've ever read. It, it, it was so good. But also as well, we had no real money or anything at that point, so it's a way of like... You can only afford two notes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it was one and a half already, but we stretched it to two. But, you know, you, you, you sort of turn your sort of limitations into strengths, if you like, you know, and I sort of had to sort of think within a, a certain budget. You know, I couldn't go like, well, it's going to be like 2,001, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And obviously it's, a, it's an intimate film anyway, but I did do it with the band that that I play live with, you know. In fact, Carly played the piano on it. She also played and arranged some of the piano for um, Nadira's theme as well, just because I wanted to keep that sort of uh, connection going, you know. But again, to me, the film and the script were alive with, with ideas and, you know, what is it to be human and isolation and love and loss. They're, they're all in there, you know, that, that are just great things to write music for, you know. You know, it's it had action beats as well, as well as sort of, you know, more profound moments. Oh, I, love, I love when the drums <coughs> kick in yeah, at, you at know, the end there. I mean, these are the things that you, you that keep you going, you know. These, you go, oh, that was a great one. You know, you're always looking for another <laughs> great one, you know, where, where everything just yeah. sort of comes together. I mean, you know, yeah, everything sort of gets done eventually anyway. But, you know, there are certain films, certain projects that are just really special. And obviously there was a great response to Moon as well, but that, that really wouldn't have changed, had people not liked it, that wouldn't have changed the experience for me and you know, obviously you want people to like what you do but 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 just you can just feel it all coming together and it working and it being right Burritos on that film <laughs> than I've ever eaten in my life. 
<laughs> we get, we get, that's it. Yeah, that's we get it. we get back to um we get back from Shepperton Studios at about 11, 11 o'clock at night, and the the local Mexicali would stay open for us, and would just feed us burritos as we came kind of zombie into the restaurant, and then zombie out to bed. <laughs> moon two, the burrito is back. Yeah. <laughs> zombie burrito. You, you say Moon two. You have said that it's a trilogy. Uh, yes, but I would stick to stick sixteen to my, years um, from now. Yeah, sixteen years from now. Oh God. Well, listen. Um, the world that it happens in is only seventeen years away. So, that's kind of... yeah. Well, yeah. Hey, maybe maybe the, documentary. Well, yes. Yeah, or it could be like one of those, you know, those live TV plays. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I'd love to do the the, the third piece is really really fun and exciting and it's a great script i'm so proud of it i hope we get a chance to make it it's oh, um god that's great you've written it already oh yeah no it's ready it's, I, I wrote it after source code and we tried to get it made and it stars two sisters from lancashire um <laughs> honestly that's the that and it's an action and it's an action film and it's a road movie and it's fucking brilliant oh excuse me i'm not gonna say that it's <laughs> really right, it's right. really good <laughs> very good indeed Swear yes. away. Uh, oh that sounds brilliant of course you got to you're going to make it of course you are I hope so you know we'll see the world is a, it's a funny place making films these days um the studios have kind of pared themselves down into these franchise sequel reboot machines but the streaming sites are making all sorts of crazy stuff and mm -hmm. and a lot of opportunity there so who knows hopefully yeah and but what's also great as well is that people also appreciate that this is great and you you've said you know that netflix is the reason that this has been made you know but people also want to see it in the big screen so you have Corazon who are putting it on at some screens and and other places and well and that's brilliant as well you kind of getting the best of both worlds of being able to see it on a big screen it's going to get to a huge audience yeah i mean I, th I think you know netflix is really interesting in that i don't want to feel like i'm doing an ad here but <laughs> but, at this, but at the same time look, they used to, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. but it, it, you know it, there used to be a time when you could tell people about movies that you love that they never even heard of yeah and and these days basically you get such a big marketing spend on studio films that are going to be in the cinemas for one week and then they're kind of forgotten about and I think what's great about streaming sites, how about that, a little bit more, um, that, BBC. that, you know, you can, <laughs> you can find out about movies like, you know, months, years after they're out and be like, oh my God, this is fantastic. I never knew about this. And you yeah. can tell people about it. And it's yeah. kind of like records used to be, yeah. you know, yeah. you can kind of introduce people to stuff that they may have never heard about. Well, I, was, I was thinking about it the other day and I, I used to watch um, Movie Drome that oh, Alex, yeah. Alex Cox did on, yeah. on the BBC, you know, and mm -hmm. And I learned about so many films from there, you know, uh, all sorts of cult movies, Sid and Nancy or The Parallax View or whatever it would have been, you know, and he'd do a little sort of intro at the yeah. front and give you an, a film education almost, yeah. you know. Yeah. But but there was something really special about discovering it, if you like, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and we are sort of marketed to and force-fed these days and obviously we want people to see the work, you yeah. know. But there is something nice about that discovery, you know. Mm. It's a nice link, actually, because I wanted to ask you, Duncan, before we finish, if that's all right, just about some of the films that have influenced you. And I, 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 I noted down a couple that I'd heard you say, which was High Noon, Peter Hyams, who also did the Space Odyssey sequel. Is that right? 2010. Yeah, I mean, you talk. I mean, it's, the the influences for Moon and, and Mute are actually very, very different um, because the the Moon influences were much more science fiction films. You know, whether it was Silent Running or Outland or or Alien. 
Newt, although aesthetically it kind of resembles something like Blade Runner, but that's only really because it's a future city film and most future cities have ended up looking like Ridley Scott thought they were going to look like back when he did Blade Runner. What I would say is the films that, that Mute really references are, are, are things like Paul Schrader's Hardcore. Mm -hmm. These really dark sort of 70s thrillers, uh, things like Lee Marvin in Point Blank. And then obviously because of Paul Rudd and Justin Theroux's characters, Robert Altman's MASH, which which is this blend of Brilliant. kind of really dark so dark subject matter, but also humor, dark, quite grim humor. And that's that's kind of where, where Mute lives. It's it's more kind of thrillers and noir and things like that rather than sci-fi. Can you remember one of the first films that made an impression on you? Errol Flynn in The Seahawks. I loved that movie. Wow. We had it on, on a, I think it might even have been with Sony U-Matic or something. And wow. I, was, I would watch it again and again and again. I loved that movie. What was it about it you loved, do you think? Ah, pirates. <laughs> okay. Two sisters from Lancashire who are pirates on a remote trip. There we go. And pirates are in the mix for the Done. Trip. Job done. <laughs> Listen, I can't thank you enough for, for bearing with us as well today with the, the slight technical issues we had, but also just for taking the time to, to get to a studio in LA and, uh, and chatting to us. It's been an absolute pleasure. It really has. Pleasure was all ours. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. the soundtrack to, well, all of Duncan's films, that's The One and Only by Chesney Hawks, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking in partnership with the EE e. BAFTAs. My huge thanks to Duncan and Clint for taking the time to talk to us about Mute, which is available to watch via Netflix. As I said during the interview, Duncan dragged Clint to a studio in LA after we reached out to them on Twitter, so it really was above and beyond the call of duty on both their parts. As you may have gathered, we've spoken to Clint on this show before about most of his film work, so be sure to check out episode 52 if you haven't already. Please do follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And please get in touch. Leave us your comments, your thoughts or your hopes and dreams for future episodes. And please be sure to spread the word amongst your friends if you like what you hear. Next up then, something new for us as we play out a Soundtracking Live for the very first time after I was joined by the wonderful Lynn Ramsey at the Glasgow Film Festival where she was showing her new film, You Were Never Really Here. She was on absolute cracking form, so I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Mm -hmm.